chillin' and a you will hear about the eliminating of the negative and a accent on a positive. And gather round me, chillin', if you're willing, and sit tight while I start reviewing the attitude of doing right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. Hello, Frugalistas, and welcome. Today, I have a very special guest who I'm connecting with all the way from the UK, and that is Aussie Firebug. Welcome. Hi, Serena. Pleasure to be here. It is just lovely to connect with you. And as you know, we always chat so much when we connect. For those who don't know Aussie Firebug, he is an Australian, which you can obviously hear from his accent, currently living in London, who blogs and podcasts about his financial independence retire early path. He is one of the most popular and well-loved Australian fire podcasts. You can probably tell me how many subscribers and followers are you up to now? Oh, that's a very good question. <laughs> um, I think it's close to... On the email list, it's around 13,000. I don't know what it's with all the socials and everything, but I just go by the email list. So 13,000 subscribers on the list at the moment. Yeah, so you're doing pretty well. I know your Facebook group is also incredibly popular and you've become one of these trusted voices that people turn to, especially during difficult times. That's good to hear. Yeah, I'm glad. I've been doing it for a while now, so I feel like I have built up a level of trust within the community and that's what I set out to do, try to be as transparent as I can. So people find my journey interesting, which a few have. Yeah, it's it's been it's been a, a good ride so far. What I really like too is because you tell it how it is. You're always very upfront about your net worth and whether it's gone up or whether it's gone down. And there's a no BSHIT approach, I think, with what you say. And you've always got a few controversial topics, one of which we're going to cover today. I, I try to put it all out there because I know that's what I was looking for when I first started back in 2015. I was trying to find like the, the fire equivalent or the Australian fire equivalent of the mad scientist was sort of my inspiration and someone that I found early on in the piece. And I found him through Mr. Money Moustache, but Mr. Money Moustache was already retired and he didn't blog so much about building the portfolio to get him to fire, whereas Brandon, mm. the mad scientist, was doing that. So I really, they say, uh, what's that saying? The imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. I really just tried to copy what Brandon was doing because I couldn't find anyone like that in Australia. And yeah, the Aussie Firebug was born. Fabulous. And so what was the inspiration? What was that moment where you decided you wanted financial independence, retire early, and that you really wanted to podcast and write about this journey? Well, the finance side of things, I've always been relatively good with money. But there was nothing I was really saving specifically for. Like I'd, I'd save up a whole bunch of money and then spend it on like some clothes, shoes, whatever, like save up a few thousand dollars before I had a full-time job. It wasn't until I got, actually, I read a book. It was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Mm -hmm. The light bulb went off in that book because it talked about financial independence. And it was like, you can buy these things called assets and then they give you some money. Either you can get rental income or you can get dividends and there's a few more assets. But that was the, the main two that he spoke about in this book. You just need to buy enough assets and then eventually one day it will give you enough passive income that you won't have to go to work. And that was sort of like my mind was blown when I read that. It was so simple. How could this be so easy? Is everyone else, is there other people that are talking about this? And that that led me to Google, Googling a whole bunch of stuff. And I went down the property path first mm -hmm. and it wasn't until I really discovered Mr. Money Moustache, like so many people in the fire community do. That's when he was writing about investing in shares. He also invested in in property and he did up property as well. But 
it was the share market that was interesting to read about. And he had a very famous blog post, the incredibly simple math to financial independence, retire early. And it just made sense. It just clicked with me. And then that really like after reading about what Pete was doing at Mr. Money Mustache, that was sort of like when my mind shifted to, I'm going to be financially independent in like 10 or 15 years through property to this can be really done in a lot shorter time, like maybe uh, seven to 10 years if really I try really hard at it. And I just changed my lifestyle a little bit. I discovered Brandon, the mad scientist through Mr. Money Mustache. He had, I think he had Pete on his original, I think it was episode one of his podcast. That's a good podcast to premiere with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Strong, strong first episode. I listened and I, I started reading about Brandon, the, the mad scientist, uh, what he was doing and his journey. And I, I related to it more because he was still building his portfolio and I really liked it. And I was trying to find, that was sort of when I thought about starting my own podcast and blog because I couldn't find the equivalent. And there was all, there was so many great financial figures in the US, but I couldn't find really financially independent, retire early people in Australia. And I remember I was down at Geelong and we were having a family holiday over Easter or something. And I was going for a run on the beach and I'm like, yeah, you know what? If I can't find anyone, like I should just do it. I should just start a blog and a podcast and see what happens and see if I can get some really smart people out in the community to like critique what I'm doing. Cause I still, you know, you're unsure when you first start, you're like, am I doing this right? Am I doing it wrong? There's analysis paralysis. And I actually say to a lot of people, I'm like, half the battle is just getting started. Just dip your toes in the water in the share market. Even if like everyone makes mistakes, it's all right to make a mistake. The thing most people do and like the mistake most people make is they never get started in the first place and they push it to the side and it's too hard basket or whatever. So I'm like, I'm just going to start. Yeah, they wait well, They wait till things are perfect, don't they? People wait till things yeah, are perfect. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's never going to be perfect. Like you just make a mistake, learn from the mistake, move on. So I really, I'm a big believer in that. I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to start this blog and this podcast and just see what happens. And hopefully some like really smart people can help me out in this journey you know, maybe some people will read it and like find it interesting. And I was just obsessed. I was like reading all the American forums, but there was nothing tailored to it, to an Australian audience. And so, yeah, I just started it. It's been crazy to, to see what's happened within the FI community in Australia in the last five years. And here we are now talking about it on your lovely podcast. <laughs> Thank you. And I agree. I think our consciousness in Australia has shifted. I remember when I lived in Taiwan, I was there 2010 to 2014. And for many years, I've loved reading about investing. And like you, the rich dad, poor dad was a bit of a light bulb moment. Not so much for me, actually, but for my ex-husband. And that was really what started us down the investment property route. And he didn't like shares. So we were always pretty predominantly investment property heavy at that time, although we're rebalancing at the moment, my Neil and I. I felt that no one really liked talking about investing the way I did. I used to get Money Magazine I subscribed to from Australia and I got it sent over to Taiwan. And we had this habit in the office that we would share Australian magazines around. And Delicious Magazine was always very popular. Women's Weekly was also really popular, not just among the women. And no one wanted Money Magazine. And I was like, really? Mm. What are you working for if you're not thinking about saving, investing your money. It was just crazy. Like no one wanted, none of my Australian Aussie Ocker friends wanted to talk about money. My Chinese speaking Australian friends, it was different. They always liked talking about investing. 
but it was just wasn't the done thing. You just didn't talk about it. Yeah, it's a, a cultural thing as well, right? Like you sort of grow up, it's a bit of a taboo subject. It's not really interesting. It's that sort of that little black box. And I don't know, like a lot of people that don't like to talk about it, like if they're bad with money, they don't even want to know about it. Yeah. You don't know how much you spent last night if you don't look at your bank balance. You know, that's some of my friends, <laughs> that was like a saying that they had. Yeah, like I, I think that's part of the teachings or the environment that you're surrounded in when you grow up. Like I've always, and I credit, I say it all the time, like 90% of what I've learned about money is from mum and dad. And it was just the, the really smaller, finer details of investing in share market that I had to go out and learn through books and the internet. But honest, honestly, the, the value of the dollar and like saving money and how important it is to set, set yourself up financially all come from mum and dad and the environment that I was brought up in. I pretty much owe them everything. It's just that they, yeah, they never invested really in the share market. I had to broaden my horizons there, but it's super important to, to teach your kids. And I hope to, hope to do that to our kids when we eventually have them really teach them how important and how powerful investing and setting yourself up financially can be and how liberating and you can create a freedom for yourself that you just won't have if you're a slave to money. Yeah, that's something I hope to do in the future for sure. I'm sure you and Mrs. Firebug will be great parents. (laughs) Oh, thanks. Thank you for that. Yeah, I hope so as well. But right now you're still in the UK, that's right? Yes. What are things like during a pandemic? And I know we had a discussion just before about how the start to your weekend has been. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm feeling, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I am a bit dusty. We, we went out for uh, Friday night drinks last night. So I'm not in the best condition, but I'll power through it. Life in the UK, look, it's as, it's as good as it can be given the circumstances of this global pandemic. Things are opening up, like we're recording this, what is it, middle of July. Mm. It's hard to put it into perspective. Like I have a job. And I'm healthy. So like everything is great, to be honest. There are a lot more people in worse situations than what me and Mrs. Firebug are in, for sure. But in I guess in the context of, you know, what we wanted to achieve this year and everything, that's sort of gone out the window. Like we we went to the UK to travel Europe for two years on the working visa. And last year we did a whole bunch of traveling. And this year we actually did like a fair bit of traveling at the start, but obviously that's come to a grinding halt. And I sort of come to the the realization that like we probably wouldn't be able to travel this year given the circumstances, but hopefully mm. we can still enjoy the city because London City is awesome. It's amazing. It's just starting to open and open back up now. I've been out for a few drinks the last two weeks, and you can go to the bar, you can go to the pub, you can have a sit down meal in a restaurant now. So like I'm really hoping it doesn't get any worse for the next couple of months, and we can get to continue to sort of be social and live our life a little bit within the city. So as long as if we get that, I'll, I'll, you know, I'm happy with that. And I think we're going to book a holiday around the UK just because we can't go internationally. It's just too risky with the whole quarantine thing that might happen if you go to another country. So in that regard, it's a little bit of a blow this year, but it is what it is. And who could have ever thought that something like this would have happened? No, exactly. I don't think anyone could have. Although that said, if if you think about it, we've had a few close calls with SARS. I remember being pregnant with my first child during a swine flu outbreak that was affecting a number of places in Australia, including the Gold Coast and was huge in Japan. And 
a number of other places and that was concerning at the time because your immune system is compromised when you're pregnant and of course you're not just worrying about yourself. Mm. We've had various different avian flus so I mean there probably should have been some some signs about the need to prepare for contingencies in case one of these got bad and of course then we've had things like Ebola and so forth. Mm. I don't keep up to date enough with all with all that <laughs> stuff. Like I've heard about it in the news, but that's about as far as my expertise goes. I did listen to, I, I watched a good clip that Bill Gates did, uh, I think like two years ago or something like that. And he basically said, yeah, the, the world is in a real vulnerable state for a pandemic. And then along comes coronavirus in 2020. So I don't know if he's a um, fortune teller or he's just really... <laughs> educated and well-versed in in the space and the literature but who knows i'm sure there's plenty of people that are talking about things that could go wrong like a bunch of other things in different fields and whatnot it's only unless they happen that you sort of look back and was like yes this person called it and this you know we should have been listening to this person but as I said, I don't know enough about it to really give an educated opinion, to be honest. Well, I'm not an expert either. But one thing I did really enjoy is your podcast that you did back in March with Peter Thornhill. And a friend of mine sent it to me. And of course, I often listen to your podcasts in any case because they're good. <laughs> but you. in this case, he said, this just really nails it for me in terms of how to situate investing during a pandemic because at that stage there was a lot of panic the share market had just dropped in Australia and globally and people were panicking left right and center and particularly a lot of self-funded retirees were selling all their shares then along comes your podcast with Peter Thornhill who has some very strong opinions on things doesn't he yes he's very very uh opinionated that's for sure <laughs> His central message, I believe, is that you just continue to invest no matter what. And he's someone who speaks at that from a place of age and wisdom, I guess. Yeah. So that that was, um, first of all, I'm really glad to hear that feedback that it helps some people out because that was the goal with that. I thought when everything was happen happening and crashing, and it was a big crash, like if you look at how much it went down on a global scale during the two months, I think it's it was the seventh or like six worst crash ever in history. So like, it's not like it's just some blip in the radar. It was, it was a big, big deal. It was big. Yeah. And I hadn't invested through the GFC and a lot of my audience, a lot, haven't been investing through a big bear market before. Now the market's bounced back quite a lot since that big crash. But at the point that I released that podcast, like it was still going down and it was just a lot of uncertainty, like you said. And I thought it'd be great to get someone on with experience and wisdom and who has seen a thing or two when it comes to investing through a crash, which Peter Thornhill has been investing for many decades. So yeah, I reached out to him and he was kind enough to come on the podcast. And I think it was just, a, yeah, like you said, the, the message was, or to use the analogy that he used in the podcast, it was something along the lines of stampede of people were coming through and we need to step to the side and let them run past us and then sort of pick them off by one as they as they run past us it's a bit morbid of, a, of an analogy but um <laughs> i think the point he was trying to make was you can do well as the market's going down and everyone's panicking we can continue to buy and pick up bargains and that has sort of been the theme amongst pretty much all the investors that i i look to for inspiration and, and guidance online everyone's just been like yeah this is happening, but it shouldn't affect your long-term goals. Like if you, if you set yourself up and you put yourself in the right position, 
you should really just be doing the same thing. Like history has shown and the statistics and the math show that over the long term, it really doesn't matter. If, you, if you're a long-term investor, which I hope most people in the fire space are, you're going to look back in a situation like coronavirus in, in regards to the share prices. I can't speak with everything else. It, like It's obviously a terrible thing. But in regards to building wealth and investing, mm. you were going to look back and say, well, like, I wish I'd bought more when it was that low because it always, always will bounce back up. And if the, if the index or the, all the shares in the world don't come back up, then something else has happened and there's probably a World War Three, and we've got bigger things to worry about than if the share price is going to go back up. So I think that's a really important <laughs> message that it will always go back up. No matter how bad it crashes, it will always go back up and reach new heights every single time. Mm. It's going to be interesting to see in 10, 15 years, what it does, because it, we're, we're in sort of in a weird situation with, with the interest rates and everything like that. And if you ask me personally, like I'm looking at the graphs from America and I think the NASDAQ is at, is at, at a higher spot right now than it was pre-COVID, which is just crazy. It is just crazy. Yeah, the money that the Fed is pumping in, like if you personally ask me, do I feel like is my heart telling me that it's going to pull back and it's going to be another crash? I think it is. I think there will be another crash, but I don't really know what's going to happen and no one else really does anyway. So I just follow the the strategies, the proven strategies of continue to invest every single month and over the long term, it's going to be beneficial. So that's what I do. So even though I think it might crash and to be, to be fair, in the accumulation phase, you sort of want it to crash because you want to buy cheaper. <laughs> um, we continue to invest every single month and we will continue to do so. I think that podcast with Peter Thornhill really just echoed that sentiment and it was just it was good to chat to him because he's just such an interesting character. Yeah, it was just it was just awesome to hear his war stories about other crashes and how it come back up and people wish they bought more and and yeah, it was just a, another wise experienced investor basically saying everyone don't panic and if you can continue life as as normally as you can and just continue to invest. I think that is wise, you know, living within your means. And he did talk in that podcast about how his wife was frugal as well. I was like, yes, I like this guy. (laughs) (laughs) He's got his priorities right. Just continuing to invest pretty much no matter what. But it is interesting because you would think in terms of psychology that it would be normal that you'd invest when things are cheap and that you would, if you're going to sell, you'd sell when it's expensive. But of course, when the market was much lower, Everyone was panicking. And even in my household, there was my lovely Neil and I were talking about, is it time to invest? Is it time to invest? And there was this sense of, no, no, you wait until things are better. But then you wait too long and it's gone back up again. And so you miss that opportunity. That, well, that, that, that's the thing that I think the psychology is the most underlooked thing or underlooked part in the fire community when it comes to investing, because too many people concentrate on the math. And yes, it is important. Life doesn't exist in the spreadsheet. It is some things that the intangibles of investing are not accounted for with management fees and returns and yields and stuff like that. One of the biggest advantages of investing every single month and always investing every single month is you remove that that need to make a decision. Like we don't have to make a decision. We just go and invest every single month and go about our life. Like we, what I liked about Peter Thornhill and what he said in that podcast is. You don't want to be a slave to your money. You want money to be a slave to you. And if you start worrying too much about your investing, is it a good point? Is it a good time to sell? Is it a good time to buy? You're using up your energy and your time, your precious resource of time 
to to dedicate to something that is an investment and that, that's money when you could be off living your life. Now, you might be into that. You might actually enjoy the uh, analytics of investing and making money and stuff like that, which is, I guess, a bit di- different. But there is something very, very underrated of basically putting it on autopilot and not having to worry about it and then coming back years later and still having a really good return and like providing that freedom that it can offer. Because that's what I think the ultimate goal is that everyone invests for is to free up a bit more of their time and to get a bit more freedom back in their life. Mm, Yeah, exactly. Especially those who have side hustles, there are other things you can be doing with your spare time Mm. too to generate income. Absolutely. I want to talk about something a little bit controversial. And of course, I know you never shy away from talking about controversial things. (laughs) And that is superannuation. We were talking before that there was a 60 Minutes program in Australia recently that as these programs are tended to take a, a fairly controversial stance. And it was talking about the number of Australians taking money out of this superannuation scheme. So currently, it's about 2 million Australians who've taken money out. And it's approaching about $30 billion in funds that have been removed from superannuation. And in this program, they interviewed one lady who was having cosmetic surgery with the money she'd taken out of super, and then another lady who'd bought a car. Now, admittedly, the car was also to help her work, but the sort of statements were, well, it's my money, I want to use it now, I'm not going to wait until I'm old and in my 70s and playing golf, I want this now. So what do you think about superannuation? This is a bit of a controversial topic, that's for sure. Go for it. I think everyone taking money out. Well, first of all, I think that it was a brilliant political move, the government, basically getting people to spend their own money to fuel the economic machine rather than them having to front up a whole bunch of money, which they did in the end. Like There was a huge stimulus, so you got to give credit where credit is due, but They basically, like I interpreted what they did because the rules to access your super were so flimsy and they just basically pushed it through to get everyone access to their money so, you know, everything didn't go to shit. Mm -hmm. And I think that they strategically did it. They made it so easy for people to access their own super because they secretly intended and it was was part of the, the want of that law to have people to start spending money on junk and like to basically stimulate the economy. Like that was, they might say like, don't spend, don't waste your money. Like this, you're, you're robbing your future self if you do. But I secretly think that that was half of the intention the whole time. It wasn't people just to take their money out and, and to be able to live. And they advertised it as it was going to help people that are on dire straits that have lost their job and have no savings, which I'm sure that there's plenty of people that it did help. But I, I reckon that it was a lot a lot of it had to do with putting money back into the economy for people that were already pretty wealthy and really didn't need to do that. And then in regards to like people spending the ten thousand on new cars and jet skis and whatever. Takeaway meals, online gambling. They were the big, big areas of spending. Yeah, I, yeah, I know. It look, it's ridiculous and it's not something that I would do. What do you say to these people? Like it, it is their own money they can spend their own money on what they want and it isn't for any one of us to sort of judge what they're spending it on i guess it's just it just goes back to education like i would hope that majority of australians don't do that but like the the reality is that a lot of them will do that and i don't really know the answer to to like help them because then an argument could be made that 
these are the same people that are going to be relying on taxpayers when they retire and they, they jump on welfare. But then again, if you look at it like that, there's always going to be, there's always going to be people in society that do that. So like, yeah, it's a hard one to sort to sort of answer. I, I'm so I sit more on the side of, I don't really care what they do with their money. Like it's their money and they can, <laughs> they can spend it how they want to spend it. But I also see that it's probably irresponsible for them to do that. It was very irresponsible. If, you, if you're gambling away, you're super, definitely. And the government was maybe irresponsible for making the rules so so easy to access. But but then again, like it is their money. So I'm so I'm a bit, I'm a bit torn on that that side. Yeah, this is people's money. That is true. It is people's yeah. money. But I agree, there is not enough education about superannuation. And I've been surprised because I sort of thought, well, no one, unless they were really, really desperate, would ever touch super because I would never touch mine unless I was really, really desperate. But the amount of people I've met who said, well, I just don't trust it. I don't trust the government. I don't think I'll live that long. I don't think the rules keep changing. The date at which I can access it gets pushed out. I'd rather get my money out now and put it to a use that I want it to because I don't trust the system. And I've been really, really surprised about how strongly people feel about this, particularly younger people. Yeah, I think when I get to my preservation age, I will be able to access my super, that's for sure. I think it's a little bit of a conspiracy theory to to think that the government is going to mess with the super that much. Will they push the preservation age back? It's probably likely, to be honest. But I don't, I think you'll be able to get to it eventually because they have changed the rules. And I don't know, I, I can sort of relate to some people in regards to this part of super being that they they would rather have the money now like if i could choose i would i would drain both my my fund and mrs five bucks fund of super and invest outside super or obviously we're mm. not going to waste the money but that enables us to reach financial independence earlier it comes down to how old you are and everything like that like the closer you get to the preservation age you'd be mad not to invest in super if you're really close to it like it's the best tax vehicle that you can get in Australia, like it, it is really good, but if you're aiming to retire super early, like we are, then it doesn't like the, the numbers start to. Well, it's not so much the numbers, but like the mass. Well, yeah, I guess it is the numbers. Like the more you have outside super, will enable you to to retire earlier. Like, it, would you rather have? Would I rather have twenty million dollars in super right now, or would I rather have two million dollars outside super? Mm. I would take the two million dollars outside super, even though I'd be less wealthy that $2 million could enable me to retire right now, whereas a 20 mil in super, I'd be very wealthy when I get to my preservation age and I could use my funds outside super to sort of take me to the preservation age, but I would probably rather the smaller amount in my hand right now to make that freedom. And the other side of of super, which I've sort of covered, like in regards to how much should I have in and how much should I have outside of super, like a little pot outside and how much should I have inside, that's a question that rages in the forums and the online communities. And, <laughs> it does. Um, you know, I, I made a calculator years ago that will give you the, the most optimal, well, it, it will tell you how much you need to put inside super and how much you need to put outside super and how many years it will take, take you to, to reach financial independence in Australia because our system is quite unique and it's very different to the US because we can't access our money inside super until the preservation age. There is a sweet spot where you need to start adding money into your outside pot and then putting money into your like inside of super. Even that calculator, and again, I come back to like the psychology, life doesn't, 
abide to these rules of investing and things can happen. So even in our situation, I know that the math says that we need an X amount inside super and that will carry us to our preservation age and the money inside super Mm -hmm. will grow to our financial independence number. Even if I look at that calculator, there comes a point in the, the, the later years, which we're almost at now, where like we basically would only have to work an extra one and a half or two years to have our outside super number grow large enough to be completely financially independent, even though the calculator says that you should get to this point and then put everything else in super and then like slowly drain your your outside super fund. But in reality, like psychologically thinking, I'm just not going to do that. I'm just going to continue to work that extra (laughs) year or two and just grow the grow the the FI amount outside super. So like, there's all these things that come into play. It's such a personal decision. Like you can do the maths and you can look at the numbers, but at the end of the day, you have to do what you feel comfortable with. And I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, I agree. You you have to do what you feel comfortable with. I am concerned at the amount of people who haven't done the maths, but as you said. It is their money, so it is their their personal choice. Yeah. Aussie Firebug, how can people find you and become connected with your podcast and listen to it so you can get even more than 13,000 subscribers (laughs) and followers? The podcast is on all, like any app that you listen to your podcast on, it's going to be on there, Spotify, Apple Music, uh, anything like that. Probably the best way to get into contact with me is the website, aussiefirebug.com. I have a contact me page, but I've been neglecting the the messages very much lately. So <laughs> apologies, anyone that, that's written to me. I will get back to you, promise you, but it's just been the inbox is out of control. <laughs> you probably got a better chance, to be honest, to catch me on my Facebook group, if I'm being completely honest. So if you search for the Aussie Fire discussion group on Facebook, you'll find me. I feel like if someone puts a question out there, I can quickly respond to it a bit easier. Like if someone writes a formal email, I like to write a formal response and like put some effort into the response, but it's so much more time consuming than uh, like a public forum like Facebook. So either one of those mediums, you can get in contact with me. But if you want to like write something private, probably the website is the best way to go. Well, it's a really dynamic Facebook group. So I would encourage people to hang out there, join it, share views on there anyway, even if you're not trying to get in contact directly with Aussie Firebug. Yeah, it's a great group. We've got a whole bunch of people. Like I think it's over 6,000 members or something crazy like that. And there's some great discussions on that group. We've got to do a bit more work to filter out the same questions that keep coming in. I'm sure that anyone that administers (laughs) a Facebook group knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's a great group. And I think if you put a question in there, there's some ripper answers that come out from people some really smart people that are members of that group and occasionally I'll chime in here and there. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much, Aussie Firebug, for being on this podcast. No worries. Absolute pleasure to come on. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Oh, listen to me, chillin' Anna. You were here about the eliminating of the negative and the accent on a positive. Gather round the chillin' You've been listening to the joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody. And of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. You got an accent, you ain't the positive, be ain't the negative, latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In Between.